You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Most of the women looking at the battle stayed out of reach of the bullets, as I did. But there was one who went in close at times. Her name was Buffalo Calf Road Woman. She had a six-shooter with bullets and powder, and she fired many shots at the soldiers. She was the only woman there who had a gun. Hello, 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 my friend. How are you? Welcome or welcome back. You are listening to For the Love of History. My name is TK, and I'll be your tour guide to the past. We've got a great episode today, an important episode today, and a timely episode. This week is Indigenous Appreciation Week, and we're talking about a super cool Indigenous Northern Cheyenne woman. And that woman's name is Buffalo Calf Road Woman. Our topic today is on more of the serious side, but it's an incredibly important topic nonetheless. But I just wanted to let you know, so grab your most comfortable pair of fuzzy socks and get cozy, and let's get started. I cannot, in good conscience, begin this story in what is essentially the middle. My teacher heart will not allow it, without giving you some scaffolding to deepen your understanding. We must start from the beginning to build a foundation of understanding, friends, and I am not too proud to admit I needed a foundation as well. Present day TK is quite grumpy with past TK, like high school and junior high school TK, for not taking more of an interest in American history. What were you doing? What were you doing? So let's dig into some indigenous North American history. Before Buffalo Calf Road Woman was even born, before there were even white people in North America, we're going to specifically talk about the Northern Cheyenne. In their own language, it's just Tash, meaning the people. Their name Cheyenne is actually a Sioux word roughly means people who speak in a strange tongue, which rude, Sue, you also speak in a strange tongue compared to the Cheyenne. Isn't that funny? I love that. I love the history of words. Anyways, if you are interested in the Cheyenne language, I am going to leave a link to the Cheyenne dictionary where you can find every single word and their pronunciation. It's really interesting. Highly encourage you to go take a look at that. So, moving on. The Northern Cheyenne were once a part of the Cheyenne tribe as a whole, and then sometime before the 1700s, they split into the Northern and Southern Cheyenne. The Northern Cheyenne lived predominantly in what is now uh, Minnesota, and later migrated to the Dakota Territory. Before the 1700s, they were mostly a fishing culture. But once they were introduced to horses, their lifestyle then revolved around nomadic buffalo hunting. The traditional Cheyenne religion, northern Cheyenne religion, is an animistic one, meaning they believe in a a bunch of different gods and spirits that either help people or hurt people. So I want to make something clear. We are not talking about a culture that's long gone. All too often, indigenous people are talked about in the past tense, but this is, in effect, erasing the existence of indigenous people around the world today. Now, 
there are approximately 12,000 enrolled members in the Northern Cheyenne Nation, many residing on one of the two federally recognized reservations, now located in Montana. They are their own sovereign entity with their own governing body and constitution and president. Her name is Donna Fisher, and she is a lady. But unfortunately, as you hopefully well know, the government just loves to get its little sticky fingers all up in reservation business and indigenous people's business. So sovereign nation with air quotes and a big asterisk and a footnote. <laughs> because the American government can't keep its hands out of things. But anyways, the government headquarters are located in Lame Deer, Montana now. And so is Dull Knife College, a community college run by the Northern Cheyenne Nation. The tribal government also operates numerous programs and services for its citizens. And if you'd like to know more about the Northern Cheyenne, you know... I'm going to leave a ton of resources for you in the show notes. So go ahead and take a look at their website. They've got an official website with a bunch of wonderful resources. So I highly recommend and encourage you to check that out. The 12,000 enrolled members of the Northern Cheyenne Nation is a far cry from what it was pre-colonization. According to some sources, the total population of indigenous people in North America ranged from a low estimate of 2.1 million to a high of 18 million. But as soon as white Puritans touched down on North America with their little buckle boots, they began murdering indigenous people and pushing them farther and farther west and off of their native lands. When the U.S. government was established, the situation became worse. Treaties were made. Treaties were immediately broken. Indian removal acts, one after another, were created and carried out. Indigenous people were forced from their native lands, forced to assimilate, and forced into submission by a government that lied, cheated, stole, and murdered. In the late 1800s, the U.S. government ramped up their forcible removal of indigenous people by sending the military to the West. And this is where our story begins. The year was 1876, and the U.S. government was in the midst of westward expansion, or takeover, or genocide, really. Let's call a spade a spade. White colonizers were using whatever means they saw fit to forcibly remove indigenous peoples off of their land. The U.S. military was sent to the territory of Montana to force a band of Northern Cheyenne warriors back to the tiny reservation the government had so generously doled out. Please read heavy, heavy sarcasm in that last statement. And this is when Colonel Asshat comes into the picture. <laughs> Colonel Asshat being Colonel Custer. But we'll get back to him later. Because we are finally getting to the star of our podcast episode today. Woo! Buffalo Calf Road Woman was born sometime around 1850, somewhere in the Great Plains area. Her early life is virtually unrecorded, and we have almost no information about who she was before she became a warrior. 
I'm not going to lie, this episode was a little hard to research given the fact that most of the Northern Cheyenne history is oral. But we do know that she was married to a man named Black Coyote and she had two children. Given the time period in which she was born, Buffalo Calf Road Woman had only known colonization her whole life. She had been on the run from colonizers, pushing her people onto smaller and smaller lands. It really was only a matter of time before she would be forced to fight or to flee. She chose to fight, and it was not unusual for women in the Northern Cheyenne Nation to be warriors, but it was rare for them to be so fierce and so present on the front lines. Like I said, We don't have a lot of primary resources, but we do have an awesome description of Buffalo Calf Road Warrior as a warrior doing her warrior thing, and it's really good. So Thomas B. Marquise was a self-taught historian and a man obsessed with Custer, gross, and the American frontier. So he wrote a book in 1967 called Custer on the Little Bighorn. And it includes an account of a female eyewitness who was watching the Battle of Little Bighorn. And in it, she says, quote, Most of the women looking at the battle stayed out of reach of the bullets, as I did. But there was one who went in close at times. Her name was Buffalo Calf Road Woman. And she had a six-shooter with bullets and powder, and she fired many shots at the soldiers. She was the only woman there who had a gun. So this primary source tells us two things. One, that Buffalo Calf Road woman was a total freaking badass. And two, that she was well-known enough for people to know her name. She held some kind of infamy among these colonizers. But the badassery doesn't stop there. No, 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 friend. Although not a primary resource... In the 1953 book Cheyenne Autumn, the Western historian and novelist Mary Sandoz describes her, Buffalo Calf Road Woman, at the 19, 19, not 19, 1878 Battle of Punished Woman's Fork in Kansas, the place I was born. I was born in Kansas. Just a little TK fact. Anyways, She is described in this book as both a mother and a warrior. Sandoz goes on to describe her as having a gun in her hands, ready to fight, and a baby tied securely to her back. And she was doing this at the age of early 20s. (laughs) At the age of early 20s. She was in her early 20s at the time when all of these accounts were being written. And she was freaking killing it. I am in my late 20s. Killing it is not the word that I would use to describe the situation. I'm doing all right, but I am not battle ready with the baby strapped to me slinging a gun all over the place. That is some next level shiznit, but I digress. Up until 1876, Buffalo Calf Road Woman was indeed a force to be reckoned with. But her infamy really took off during the Battle of the Rosebud. The Battle of the Rosebud took place on June 17, 1876, in the Montana Territory between the United States Army and its Crow and Shoshone allies. 
against a force consisting mostly of Lakota Sioux and Northern Cheyenne during the Great Sioux War of 1876. So just a very brief, long story short, with the Battle of the Rosebud, basically the U.S. the U.S. had pushed the Sioux and the Northern Cheyenne into Montana territory, and were like, okay, this is your land now and forever, and nobody except government officials and the military can come on your land. But then gold was discovered in that area. <laughs> and then the government was like, oh, hey, Remember that land that we forced you to move on and then we said that we'll never force you to move again and uh, that you could have it and it was totally your own? Well, we were wondering if we could buy that land from you at a ridiculously reduced price. And (laughs) they were like, no, of course not. You said this land was ours. We're not giving it up. And then a battle ensued. That's what happened. It was a bloody battle, and the Sioux and the Northern Cheyenne were just overrun, completely overrun. But the Sioux and the Northern Cheyenne warriors fought so hard, and among the warriors was Buffalo Calf Roadwoman and her brother. They were some of the last ones to leave and retreat, which would end up being bad for her brother because his horse was shot, and he was almost thrown from his horse. Seeing what was happening, Buffalo Calf Roadwoman whipped her horse around amidst the shower of bullets coming from oncoming U.S. government troops. She rode up alongside her brother, and he leapt off of his horse onto hers, and they barely escaped with their lives, which is amazing. It's so cool. I have a brother, and I'd like to think that I would also run into a shower of bullets to save his life. If you're listening to this, bub, I love you. Anyways, the dude in charge of the soldiers on the government side was General George Crook, and he was incredibly impressed by the Cheyenne and the Sioux warriors and Buffalo Calf Road woman, and so were her own people. The Northern Cheyenne would end up calling this battle... The battle where the sister saved her brother. That's cute. It also sounds like a Friends episode title. (laughs) But this is not the last time Buffalo Calf Roadwoman would fight her oppressors. No, no. She had more work to be done. The Battle of Little Bighorn has been talked about and talked about and talked about, talked about some more, but rarely from the perspective of the Northern Cheyenne. Remember Colonel Asshat Custer? Well, all I will say about him today is that he was sent to the Montana Territory to force the Northern Cheyenne back to their reservation, and he was given free range to use any means necessary to get them back there. And through his own stupidity and the courageous efforts of the Sioux and the Northern Cheyenne, he was defeated and killed. But no one would find out who did it for 130 years. It wasn't until 2005 when North Cheyenne elders came forward and told Buffalo Calf Road Woman's story. Why did they wait so long, though? Great question, friend. Excellent question. Well, It was out of fear of retribution from the U.S. government, which is a true and legitimate fear to have had at that time and honestly now. Wallace Beercham, the director of the tribal services for the Northern Cheyenne, in an interview with Mental Floss, 
explains that Buffalo Calf Road Woman's warrior exploits really surfaced at the Battle of Little Bighorn, where she fought out in the open instead of taking any cover, and where she stayed on her horse the entire time. It was pretty common to get knocked off your horse in the midst of battle because a lot of things are going on. Horses get scared, so it was really a feat in and of itself that she stayed on her horse. So how did it all go down? How was Custer defeated? How did Buffalo Calf Road Woman kill him in the first place? So Custer had split his group of soldiers into two, and that was uh, like mistake number one. It was a bad idea. Then he attacked a village that he thought was just full of women and children, which, the fuck? Like, what the hell? Ugh, I have no words. He's a disgusting human being. But anyways, it was actually full of warriors who were just sleeping in late, so they weren't out and about. They were inside their homes. And as soon as the warriors heard, they all mounted up and went out, including our girl, Buffalo Calf Road Woman. And according to Bircham, she was an excellent markswoman. She used a club-like object and not a gun to knock Custer off of his horse. It's not really clear exactly what happened after that, but Bircham says that Buffalo Calf Road Woman and other Cheyenne and Sioux women finished off Custer and the other cavalry soldiers right after the battle was over going from soldier to soldier, finishing them off or taking things from them, remembering relatives killed by U.S. soldiers in previous attacks. I want to tell you so very badly that things ended happily, that Buffalo Calf Road Woman and her brother and husband and children lived happily on their land until they passed away. But I can't, because that's not what happened. In 1877, the Northern Cheyenne were on the run from the U.S. government. They fled all the way to what is now present-day Oklahoma and the native lands of the Chickapoo, Osage, and the Wichita, just to name a few. But they were homesick, and this wasn't their land. They wanted to go home, so they did. From the fall of 1878 to the spring of 1879, some 300 Northern Cheyenne made the long journey back to their home. During this time, Buffalo Calf Road Woman's husband, Black Coyote, went through a very understandable personality change. He was described as coming unhinged. He would go into a rage, even at his own people, often recklessly brandishing a gun. He also stole horses that were the property of the U.S. Army, and when confronted by a tribal leader, Black Coyote fatally shot his own leader. Things finally came to their awful conclusion on April 5, 1879. A party he led ambushed two U.S. soldiers who were in Montana Territory, killing one of them. When U.S. forces tracked down the party, Black Coyote had some of the soldiers' things with him, and he and two other warriors were arrested, tried, convicted, and sentenced to be executed by hanging. But his actions are completely understandable. His family, his community, his life, as he knew it, was being ripped apart right in front of his eyes. 
He was experiencing trauma on another level and could do nothing. Buffalo Calf Road woman, in the midst of facing the death of her husband and the genocide of her people, had caught the white man's coughing disease, also known as diphtheria, and died at some point in May 1879. The exact location of her grave is unknown, but according to the Northern Cheyenne Director of Tribal Services, Wallace Bircham, the Cheyenne custom was to bury the dead immediately in the nearby hills. He thinks Buffalo Calf Road Woman was buried in the hills near what is now Miles City, Montana. Although there is no monument to her, and Beertum says funding is needed for commemorations, she has been the subject of at least one prize-winning novel by Rosemary and Joseph Aganotto, Buffalo Calf Road Woman, The Story of a Warrior of the Little Bighorn. My dear friend, we have come to our final thought today, and I don't have a super happy story for you, or a funny little quip, or something to really make you giggle, but I think it's important for people, including myself, to sit with these uncomfortable feelings. But what I won't do is leave you feeling hopeless. Today, I have a message of hope for you, and kind of what we can do to ensure that Indigenous people are supported and represented the way they should be. There's a movement and a campaign called the Land Back Movement that has existed for generations with a long legacy of organizing and sacrifice to get Indigenous lands back into Indigenous hands. The Land Back Campaign is a mechanism to connect, coordinate, resource, and amplify this movement and the communities that are fighting for land back. The four land back campaign demands are, number one, dismantle white supremacy structures that forcibly removed indigenous people from their lands and continues to keep them in oppression. Number two, defund white supremacy and the mechanisms and systems that enforce it. Number three, return all public lands back to indigenous hands, and number four, consent. Moving out of an era of consolation and into a new era of policy around free and prior informed consent. Donations are always a good way to support any cause, but if you can't, that's okay. There are other things that you can do, like educate yourself, listen to podcasts, read articles, buy books by Indigenous authors, learn about the land that you live on, follow Indigenous influencers on Instagram and Twitter, whatever. Just get the information in your beautiful brain so that we can work together to dismantle systemic racism and white supremacy. And you know I will leave further reading, research, and resources for all of these things in the show notes, so please go check that out. This may not be the happiest final thought of an episode, uh, but for me, it fills me with the most hope, and in my opinion, that's way better.
That's all I have for you today, friend. I hope you found this episode enlightening and informative, maybe a little enjoyable. I don't know if enjoyable is the right word to use. I know we talked about some heavy stuff today, but it's important stuff. So if you found this episode to be at at all any of those things, then leave a review, leave some stars for you, girl. Send me a message letting me know what you thought. I love hearing from you. This Sunday on Instagram, I'll be announcing the lineup for the next two months of episodes. I'm going to be trying to pre-record a lot because I am moving to a new prefecture and I got a new job. Whoop, whoop. So it's going to be real, real busy here in the next two months. But our episodes together will still be the same great quality. And if you'd like to help support the podcast, please like and share and follow on Instagram. Tell your friends, tell your neighbor. And if you're so inclined, check out the podcast Instagram where you can donate a little bit if you'd like. If you'd like. But uh, I think I've done enough talking. Have a great week. Stay hydrated, you glorious creature. And I will talk to you next week. Bye. Why is there a metronome right now? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs>